0: You're listening to a podcast from St. Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbart's.com.au. It would be so helpful to have your Bibles open, your Bible app ready, 1 John chapter 4. There's also an outline on the back of the news, so there's translation points there in English, Dinka, Korean and simplified Chinese, so please make use of those. But right now, let's, let's pray and ask for the ultimate help. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your extraordinary love, your extraordinary love that we see poured out in your Son and in the power of your Spirit. Lord, this day, would you please teach us more, that we might see your love, that we might experience and grow in our understanding, that we might pour out our lives in love of one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Australia, we've got a hunch that love is good and that love should be pursued. We love the idea of love. Just scroll through the ever-growing list of rom-coms on Netflix. We love all sorts of things like sport, democracy sausages, and the Aussie battler. We even aspire to express love through mateship and giving people a fair go. At the end of last year, the BBC took a peek at what Australians love and why. And they had one particular case study in mind, one place where they started, with the question, why do Australians love the mullet? Okay, so pretty critical question. Now, if you're not aware, okay, just a bit of a public service announcement, Uh, a mullet is a type of haircut, okay, although some people say it is a way of life. And it has made a bit of a resurgence in Australia since COVID. But when the reporters asked mullet adorned Australians why they love them, there were all sorts of answers. There was an array of answers, such as it speaks to the us, It's really iconic. But one answer, as funny as this all was, really stood out, saying something along the lines of, it's no wonder that the mullet has made a resurgence, Because when we see our Aussie icons, especially our sporting stars, donning a mullet, it spurs us on to look like them. This distinctive marker pointed to something about their identity. John says, because God is love, we should love one another as a reflection of his love for us. Love for one another is the distinctive marker which should adorn God's children. Of course, the command to love is not limited to just other Christians. And so Dan showed us last week that Jesus expanded the standard of love. So we should love as he has loved us. Jesus also expanded the, the object of our love, that our love should extend to even our enemies. But here, John has in focus how the church is to love one another. And so we see verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another. Verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then again, verse 21, Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. But it's not always easy. When you're committed to a mullet, well, I'm sure it comes at some sort of cost, but loving one another, not only in thought and word, but with an active love like God has for us, well, it's really hard. It's hard because of the fault lines in our own hearts. It's hard because of the fault lines in others. Now, I'm not going to do a poll this morning, but if I ask the question, who here has ever had difficulty in loving a brother or sister in Christ, or perhaps even if there is someone now in your life whom you find it difficult to love, with a love like Jesus has for us, well I think everyone would, or at least everyone should, shoot up their hands. Think about how difficult this was for the community to whom John writes. They may have even been doubting if God loved them. There was potentially all sorts of relational issues unfolding. There will be people here today who have really been hurt in church community. So why should we persist? Why should we love one another? John gives us three reasons. We love one another because God is love, God loves us, and God loves through us. So first, we love one another because God is love. So let's pick up again. Verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, John has already said that God is light and that God is fire, But here he adds, God is love. So that is the very nature of God, 24-7, 365 days a year, 366 days in the leap year. The very nature of God always has been, always will be love. Now, immediately as people hear that God is love, a few thoughts might spring to mind. It might cause some people to think, yes, God is love. See, that means so long that you can believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe, but so long as you love, well, then it's all the same. We're one of the same. That it's kind of possible to remove God from the equation so long as you're on board with love. Love is what matters. But that's not what John is saying. You can't just remove God... From love. Flipping God is love into love is God is not an equal set of statements. They're not the same thing. I mean, you can pursue love as a type of God, as some sort of guiding principle or ideal or virtue to be worshipped and adored. But I'll tell you, not only will your standard of love come up short, but you'll also be robbed of the resources to love from the one who is the author and source of love. See how relational the language is that John is using. Love isn't a mere concept. He says love is known. Love is known in the one who is perfect love. God is the very source of love and he is loving all the time. Nothing that God does or is, or says, none of his activities, thoughts, judgments, plans, or ways are incompatible with love, but they are all an expression of his perfect love in action. Some might say, well, um, Adam, you say God is love, but have you read the Bible? Uh, Some might say, you say God is love, but particular actions of God, perhaps like judgment? Well, surely that's a contradiction. Surely that shows that God is not loving all the time. But the Christian, in response, trusting even in the things that we find difficult to understand, rests in the knowledge that nothing God does is incompatible with God being love. It's why when Tim Keller first shared that he had stage four pancreatic cancer, that he was able to say, but it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know and therein my hope and my strength. What could lead us to such a conclusion? Because we simply look at the cross. Remember, God is light, perfect, pure, without sin or fault, but also seeing and exposing every part of darkness, even that in our own hearts and lives. Remember, God is fire, not just longing for justice, but will purify the world of all brokenness and sin. God doesn't switch between being love, light and fire, but he's all three all the time. John Stott puts it like this. Far from consuming sin... God's love has found a way to expose it because he is light and to consume it because he is fire without destroying the sinner but rather saving them. God has found a way. God's love and justice are not incompatible with the other but come rushing together on the cross. John says, It's therefore precisely because of who God is and that we are born of him. The children born of the one who is love, that we are to love one another. I shared a few weeks ago that people can readily ascertain that Theodore is my son, sometimes without even seeing us side by side, because the resemblance is, is so obvious. Well, how much more, how incredible it would be if people could pick whose children we are, because the actions of our lives Reflect the one to whom we belong. As children of God, made in his image, redeemed through his Son, gifted with his Spirit. When John says in verse 7 that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, he's not saying that it's the act of being loving that makes you a believer. John isn't saying that if we love one another, then you can know God. John isn't saying the quality of our love is a condition for knowing God. He makes it clear that we're believers by trusting God's son. Now, here he's saying that when we love one another, it's fruit of knowing God. Let's have a look at verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Our love says something about ourselves, that we're born of God and known by Him. Our love says something about God, giving a glimpse of who He is. That love, the love that we show, it's going to be a bit broken and and wonky, but it's a glimpse nonetheless. We love one another because God is love. Second, we love one another because God loves us. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So many things can really cause us to doubt if God loves us, if God's love is real. But John says that we can be confident in God's love because it's been shown to us in a concrete act. See how God has shown us his love by Jesus coming into our world and onto the cross. Note the threefold nature of God's love. It's proactive, it's undeserved, and it's sacrificial. So God's love is proactive. We didn't go to God, but God sent his one and only son to us. God's love is undeserved. His love isn't conditional on our loving him. No, he first loved us. God's love is sacrificial. His love knows no limits, not even laying down his life for us. Do you ever doubt that God loves you? John says, look here. Oh, see how God has loved us. With everything going on in the church to whom John writes, they may have really doubted God's love. Perhaps the group who broke away were really making them feel like that they didn't believe the right things, or that they weren't spiritual enough, or weren't good enough. But John says that's not true. Through his son, God has shown us his love concretely. God loves you with a proactive, undeserved, and sacrificial love. John continues, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, so that is in light of God's proactive, undeserved, and sacrificial love, we also ought to love one another. So how should we love one another? Well, you know, John doesn't actually explicitly say, but the also is a bit of a clue. All right. In light of God's love, we also love with a love like God has for us. I mean, what else could really make sense? Can you imagine for a moment John writing and he says, Dear Church, God has loved you with the most extraordinary love. It's, it's incredible. You know, God took the initiative. It's a love that's totally undeserved. It's a love that's completely sacrificial. It costs Jesus even his life. It's amazing. Look at it. Delight in it. Grow in it. Relate to it. But as good news also for you, as you respond in turn, as you relate to those around you, loving them, well, there's a whole different lower standard that you can pour out. No, that just wouldn't make sense. This is how God loved us. Therefore, this is how we should love one another. The way that you relate to God's love is worked out in the way you relate to one another. Uh, Consider just for a moment what that might look like for someone on one of your front lines, or someone in your life right now who is a bit tricky to love. As you love them practically, not merely with thought or just with words, we respond with a love that is proactive. So you're not waiting for the right time, you're not waiting until they come to you or they make the first move, but you're taking the initiative. We respond to that person with a love that is undeserved. That is, we're not weighing up if we think they deserve it. We're not saying, well, if they do this or if they do that, if they meet a certain condition or expectation, well, then and only then, when they meet that benchmark then I'll love them. No, we're saying, or we're thinking, you don't deserve this, but nor do I, so this is how I'm going to love you. To that person, we also respond with a love that is sacrificial. That is, we're not loving out of our leftovers, but it's costing us something of our time, our resource, our convenience, our gifts, or even of our pride. But even as we do so, it's but a drop in the bucket of the riches of love that Jesus has poured out for us. It's not always straightforward in knowing how best to love people, especially in situations when there is wrongdoing that needs to be recognised. But if you've ever felt like you're always making the first move, or there's nothing that would merit the love that you're showing... Or that it feels really costly to love that person well they're all clues that you're loving with the type of love that god has for us that's why it's so important that we understand delight and grow in god's love for us if we don't we're never going to be fueled to love in a way according to god's standard we'll always be weighing it up counting the cost growing in resentment But when we dive into the bottomless reservoir of God's love, that which we see made manifest in Jesus coming to us and saving us, well, we are empowered to love in the most phenomenal way. Finally, we love one another because God loves through us. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. When we love God, God's love is made complete in us. Now, that can't possibly mean that God's love is somehow lacking and he's just waiting for us to come along and, you know, fill it in to join the dots and and make it sort of sorted out. John has already so carefully shown us that God's love is perfection. But John is saying that as we love one another, we are actually participating in, in God's loving mission in the world we're participating in God's purposes for his love so know that there's both an outward and an inward effect the outward effect is that as we love well actually it's an act of evangelism that as we love God's love flows into the world and people are pointed to him this seems like I think a really extraordinary claim but actually doesn't take much to put it to the test Um, I'd just love for you to think about a moment uh, in which you have been the recipient of generosity from a brother or sister in Christ. Think back to that time, and I doubt when we're recipients of that generosity from brothers and sisters in Christ, not only does it usually cause us to give thanks for them, but it so often points us back to delight in the kindness and love of God himself. When we love, we're participating in God's love flowing outward, which also must mean that when we hold back from loving or love in a diminished, substandard way, we're actually working against God's purposes. Just this week, when I was on the way down to Brisbane, there was a really terrible traffic jam along the highway, and we'd basically reached a standstill on the highway. Uh, Nothing was moving, the traffic was backing up further and further down the road. When we fail to love one another or limit the way that we love one another, it's like we are the bottleneck standing in the way of God's loving mission flowing into the world. God, of course, is not ultimately dependent upon us to bring his purposes to completion. Yet in his kindness... He uses us and invites us to participate. When we love with the power of the Spirit who enables us, John says we are testifying that as we are pointing to the good news, that verse 14, the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. When we love in proactive, undeserved and sacrificial ways, in a way that makes no human sense, it helps people to see that the cause for our love is not from within us, but it's from and in response to who God is and what God has done. That's the outward effect. But note also the inward effect. So verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The image here is that when we love others, it's like God's love increasingly takes up more space, it occupies more space in our hearts, and as it does so, it's squeezing out, it's, it's leaving no space for fear. But when we're stingy with God's love, rarely going to others with love, continuously putting conditions on our love, limiting our love to when it's convenient or easy it will almost inevitably make us nervous about God's love for us. The way we love others does not only show the world God's love, it also teaches us about God's love as well. When we love others in a proactive, undeserved and sacrificial way, we are being reminded so practically that we can face the day of judgment without fear, because we know and we're confident that God's saving love has been poured out in Jesus. We can't possibly do that in our own power. We have to desperately rely on God's Spirit. We have to keep desperately relying, as John says, on the love God has for us. There was a recent study that suggested that the main reason why people can hesitate from loving acts of kindness is because they're just not confident that it's going to make any difference. They're not confident it's going to have any effect. What was really interesting when they asked the recipients of those loving acts of kindness about what made it significant, they said, well, it had little to do with the size of the loving act of generosity or the effect of the loving act of generosity, but it was just knowing that the person was motivated and had the intent to show love. Yet when the researchers then went, but what are the reasons that we would do this, in effect do loving things, the best they could come up with, other than, well, it seems kind of right thing to do, was that they said, well, kind things actually are also really good for your own mental well-being." Now, don't get me wrong, that's amazing. How blessed it is to give but if that's our only reason there's an inherent problem if we only love people on the outside when it's of benefit to us on the inside you know what we'll be doing we'll always be putting limits on our love and we'll be forever limited to draw on the resources from only within but that's not the case for the children of god God has given us the reason, relationship, and resources to love. God has invited us to participate in the greatest project of love that has ever broken into the world. And God will bring that to completion when his son returns. We love not because it is benefit to us. We love because God is love. God loves us and God loves through us. So therefore, let us love one another. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your extraordinary love, your love which is proactive, undeserved, and sacrificial, your love which we see made manifest, especially in the coming of Jesus and his death for us. Lord, we are so sorry for the times in which we fall so short of the love that you have shown us. Lord, would you please help us in the power of your Spirit that we might pour out our lives, especially to one another, that we might point people to you, show glimpses of your love, participate in your loving mission in the world, that we too might show a proactive, undeserved. And sacrificial love. Lord, I particularly pray for anyone here today who really is not sure of your love for them. Lord, I pray that you might really increasingly reveal your love, that they might experience your love, that they might have confidence in your love as they look to the cross. Lord, where we find it difficult to love people, may we be so moved and rely on your love and not our own strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbart's.com.au.